It's kind of what we were brought up in. And it's a challenge to move from that self-focused Western mindset to a more biblically focused, God-centered mindset. And the reason why I'm saying this to you is not to have a go at you, but it's because this is what I was challenged with when I started to read Genesis. These kind of things. In general, we're self-focused, but the Bible is God-focused. We're materially focused, whereas the Bible is spiritually focused. We ask the what question, while the Bible answers the why question. We ask the what questions, while the Bible is answering the why questions. Okay, that's my introduction. I'll take breath. Oh, I miss preaching, but you haven't missed me, have you? Anyway, so over, the, over this term, we're going to take six Sunday mornings, two a month, and we're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis. And basically, we're going to cover creation and the fall under six headings, God, creation, rest, mankind, men and women made in his image, mankind, men and women, the roles that he's given us, and then fall and grace. And because this is such a huge topic, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And sometimes we might just mention some things one week and go into greater depth the following week. But my prayer is that we're going to cover the main things and the beginning things and the why things that hopefully will give us a better understanding to understanding not only the book of Genesis, but the Bible as a whole. So this first week, I just want to start by looking at three things, really. What kind of writing is it? What is it trying to teach us, big picture? And what isn't it trying to teach us? So let me read. I'm going to read for you Genesis 1 to 3. Then I'm going to miss out a bit for the days of creation. You can read that in the week. Then I'm going to pick up it again at the end of Genesis 1. Then I'm just going to read the first few verses of Genesis 2. So Genesis 1, they're in your notes, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Then goes on to talk about the six days of creation. Then in verse 26, we'll pick it up towards the end of those days. Then God said, let us make mankind, men and women, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Verse 31, it says, God saw that, God saw all that he had made 
And it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now I'm going to jump around a little bit in your notes. And if you want to turn over, you'll see there's a bit of an overview on page two. I'm going to do that for you now. Let me just give you a brief overview for Genesis so that you can help to put what we're saying this morning in context. Genesis 1.1 is a statement. In the beginning, God created everything. And then for the rest of Genesis 1 and a little bit of Genesis 2, the key parts of that creation, birds and water and men and women, are stated. And then for the rest of Genesis 2, God goes back and talks about and further explains mankind, men and women, that he mentioned in the first part. And then we get on to Genesis 3, which is mankind's fall and the immediate consequences. And then if you want to just follow through Genesis, as you know, it goes on. The consequences of human sin, uh, wickedness spreading, society breaking down, human race becomes subject to demonic powers. God is rightly angry, sends a flood, starts again with a remnant, but we kind of see the same thing happening again. And then in chapter 11, we're kind of introduced to Abraham, this model of salvation, because his faith is credited to him as righteousness, just as your faith, if you're a Christian today, is credited to you and I as righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus. He's a model for salvation, but he's also the one through whom the Savior Jesus, whom we've been singing about this morning, is ultimately going to come. And so then for the rest of Genesis, talks about Abraham and some of his descendants, people like Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Joseph. And we're actually seeing how, how God and, and the life of faith works out in reality. The people of Israel end up in Egypt needing a saviour. So if you like, that is a very brief overview of the book of Genesis. So let's think, what kind of writing is it? What kind of writing is the start of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 3? Well, I'll put a statement in your notes there, back on page 1. And the statement is, Genesis 1 to 3 is history written in a childlike parabolic style. It's history written in a childlike parabolic style. Parabolic style just means it's a parable. You know what a parable is? You know the little boy that cried wolf, the good Samaritan? It's a parable. It's a story with a meaning. So let's just think about that. It's history. So the storytelling has a, has a parabolic, in style it's a parable, but the characters are historical. The rest of the Bible treats the characters like Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to 3 as historical. Adam and Eve were real people. They were the first people. They're not made-up characters in a made-up fairy tale. They're real people, real characters that, in a sense, have been uh, put into a parable in order to tell us something that we need to know. So it's history, but it's history written in this style of a parable. Now, most of us aren't hugely familiar with this type of writing. 
the original readers or hearers of Genesis would have been, that they would have been much more used to this kind of style, to this way of communicating. So we have to get our heads around it. So maybe let's think about one of the most famous characters, if you like, or infamous characters in Genesis 1 to 3, which is the snake, the snake who goes on to deceive Eve. Now, we, we know that snakes don't talk, right? We know snakes don't talk. But we also know from the New Testament that the snake is parabolic. It's a parable. In the book of Revelation, the snake stands for Satan. That's who, that's who the snake is representative of. Now, we know that from Revelation, and we can kind of understand it when we read the story, even though nowhere in Genesis does it say the snake equals Satan. So we're being told a real piece of human history, but in the style of a parable. And we're not supposed to dismiss this whole story as fairy tale because there's a talking snake. And we're not supposed to doubt that Adam and Eve existed because snakes don't talk. But we're supposed to ask, who or what does the snake represent? Who does it represent in the story? And the Bible's clear in other places. Who it represents is Satan. It doesn't take that much to work out. But if you dismiss the whole story because snakes don't talk, then you miss that. So at the start of Genesis... If you think about it, we're reading events that no one could have witnessed. No one apart from God was there when God created. No one was there with the video camera. No one was there capturing what happened. When he he made the sun and the moon and the stars and the animals and the first man and the first women. And so we get these startling events that are told without the slightest suggestion that there's anything odd going on here. Man is formed out of dust and breath is breathed into him. The first woman is made from a a bone coming out of the man. Snakes are talking. God is walking in the garden. God is spirit, not fizzy. He doesn't have legs. How does God walk in a garden? Because it's a parable. It's a picture. There seems to be a tree that's determining human history and another tree that can seem to determine can people live forever or not. See, we've got to get our heads around. Genesis 1 to 3 is describing facts, if you like, real things, but it's using picture language. It's written so simply that a child can understand it and depicts God as this workman and he's creating the world over these creative periods. It doesn't run in chronological order. Parables don't need to. The writer can group things together as he wants to, in a sense. It doesn't matter that it's not strictly chronological. The stars are mentioned at an appropriate point, but you can't deduce when God first made the stars from when they're mentioned in the parable. Someone said... We don't need to worry about clashes with scientific accounts because it's not intended as a scientific description at all. Genesis 1 to 3 is not a scientific description. It's not written like a textbook. That's not, that's, that, that's not how it's written. That's not the purpose of it. Just think about it from the parables that you know. Does it matter if the Good Samaritan really existed? Does it matter? 
It doesn't, does it? Because what we take from that is not that there was a good Samaritan, but actually we should treat our neighbours like how we want to be treated. Are you with me? Does it matter if somebody did try to build their house on the sand while the person next to them built it on the rock or not? Does it matter? No. Because in a parable, what you're trying to get is the why. Now, in Genesis 1 to 3, we've got to understand Adam and Eve are real. They are historical. If you're a Christian, you and I can meet them in heaven one day. But we have to understand that the writer, who is ultimately God, is not concerned so much with retelling their life story like it was a, like it was a biography in strict chronological order. The writer of Genesis, he's more painting a picture. He's using words to do it. It, It's more of a crayon drawing than a fantastic masterpiece, but he is painting a picture using words of things that happened in order that we understand enough about what happened to understand why it happened. See, the problem often comes with understanding parables is when people try to fill in the blanks and they start to make deductions from what's not said. That's where parables get into all kinds of problems. The key to remember is this. We are told enough of what happened to understand why it happened and then we can work out our response from that. Does anybody understand? Lord, help me. So that's the kind of writing that it is. Adam and Eve, real people, real things happening between them, God, Satan, but it's written in the style of a parable, which means it does not come across like a history textbook, and we must be careful not to try to read in what it doesn't say in order to try and make scientific sense of the world. Do you understand that? So let me move on. What is it trying to teach us? You'll love this statement. Genesis 1 was never intended to be an account of material origins, but an account of functional origins in relation to people made in the image of God, understanding the cosmos as his temple. Do you like that one? That's one to get a little fridge magnet, stick on your fridge. Let me just go through it and uh, we'll see if we can get there. So by material, I mean what was made. Genesis 1 was never intended to be an account of what was made, what it was made from, how it was made, how long it took to make it. That wasn't why it was written. But it was an account of functional origins in relation to people made in the image of God. In other words, who made it? Who made it? Why did they make it? And how do the things that they made function together in order to be what they wanted it to be. In this case, God made it, and how did God make it so that it was all going to work as he wanted it to work, relating to to humans and the rest of his creation? How are they going to relate to humankind, men and women? How are those humans going to relate to God? In essence, that's why it was written. It's a functional origins, not a material origins understanding the cosmos, that's just the heavens and the earth, everything seen and unseen, that's cosmos, just, that's all that is, as his temple. The heavens and the earth are his temple. Now, what I mean by temple is a temple is classically the place where God resides. God's in the temple, if you like. 
his presence is, where he rules from. We probably easier understand it as in kings and queens residing in their palace as they rule their kingdom. We understand that kind of terminology. Well, if you like, a palace for a god is called a temple because it denotes deity, godness, rather than humanity. But essentially, they're talking about the same thing. It's where they reside, it's where they reign over, it's where they rule from. And Genesis 1 is about understanding that the cosmos, the heavens and the earth, everything that God created is, is, is his temple. It's easy for us to think about we're on earth, God's in heaven, and he kind of rules from there, but it's a bit distant. It's like having a king far away, you know, Donald Trump figure rules the world from the White House. You know, it's that the king's ruling from his palace, but it's over there and we're over here and maybe one day the king will come over. That's not what Genesis 1 is about. What it's saying is what God made, the heavens and the earth, is now the place where he is ruling. He is ruling over the cosmos, his creation now, not one day, now. He's ruling over it now. The heavens and the earth are his, is his temple. It is his palace. It is his kingdom. He's not shut away in a little part of the kingdom. He's not shut away in a little part. It's his. It's his. He's ruling and reigning over it right now. We'll come on to that more in coming weeks. If you don't quite understand or or get, or even if you don't understand enough to agree or disagree with what I'm saying, don't worry. We will unpack some of this over the coming weeks. But I just wanted to give you the big picture start, if you like. So this morning, I suppose we're looking at Genesis 1.1, the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, it's the start. It's not just the start of the book of Genesis. It's not just the start of the entire Bible, but it's a statement about the start. It's a statement about the beginning, and it states that the start.